This is Maxine and the Planets Unknown, a sci-fi audiobook in podcast form. Written by, performed by, and produced by me, Brad Lawrence, still during a pandemic, still in a tiny little side room of my Brooklyn apartment, uh, still with the most rickety makeshift recording setup you could possibly imagine. Uh, And we are at the penultimate episode of Maxine and the Planets Unknown. We will be done soon uh the episode after this one's gonna be the final episode uh the story's drawing to a close i don't know if any of you knew this or if i ever made it clear in previous episodes that this was uh all of this was the first draft of the novel i have been writing this episodically as i go along and uh two days ago i completed the novel um and it is some 100,300 some odd words and 317 pages, and it's just insane. And uh, um, I am going to start the process of refining it and going through second and third drafts or whatever very, very soon. Uh, you know, writing-wise, the, the, the podcast will stay. I'm not, I'm not going to make you guys sit through this entire thing again. Um, and I, I think the story arc is exactly what I want it to be, and I think that Maxine's journey is, I want it, is what I want it to be. But there are some things to refine, I guess. Uh, but yeah, so we are we're drawing to the end. Um, thank you guys so much for being here and listening to this. And we'll talk more about the end next episode, which will be the end. So for now, I'm just going to hand it over to uh, the, uh, episode, um, Jesus, what episode is it? 24. It's episode 24. Episode 24. Um, I hope you guys enjoy it. So, Maxine and the Planets Unknown. Episode 24. Chapters 55 56, 57, 58, 59, and 60. Chapter 55 Over the years that followed the death of Maxine's family, People, Sumner more than anyone, would emphasize all the things that had had to go freakishly wrong that day. Not least of which was the fact that two objects in open space encountering one another was something like a 1 in 300,000 chance. Beyond that, the possibility that any object the Contiki might encounter would be larger than a few grains of cosmic dust, then you started to stray into, as they say, astronomical odds. But the Contiki had been built for astronomical odds. Insurance underwriters had insisted on it. The hull of the ship had been made to shrug off something easily ten times the mass of the handful of space rocks that had ripped open hydroponic cell 3 that day. The combination of Just the right angle, just the right speed, just the right shape, just the right spot, or more to the point, just the wrong of all of those things, 
It boggled the mind. It was unbelievable. It was also an undeniable reality. And there were also a lot of things that had gone right that day. The doors auto-sealed, the bulkheads held, the crumple zones crumpled. All of this minimized and localized the damage. What could have been catastrophic was kept to simply tragic. But what had gone right was not discussed with Maxine as much as what went wrong and all the odds against what went wrong. Because... What these people were trying to say to her was, it's not your fault. It's an arbitrary universe, a capricious god, the whim of fate. And definitely not the responsibility of an absent-minded nine-year-old girl. But the fact that everyone seemed to think that Maxine needed to be reassured that it was not her fault only served to reinforce the feeling that it must be. And she couldn't discuss how she felt without people trying to reassure her in exactly that most counterproductive of ways. So eventually, she just stopped discussing how she felt. That was one thing about Sheriff Sumner Gray. He never demanded to know how she felt. He never told her how she should feel. From day one... From their very first awkward hug there in the supply hangar, the day that her entire life had gotten sucked out into space, he had just told her that she was safe and she wouldn't feel the same way forever. Both were hard to believe at the time. Both were harder to believe in the years that immediately followed. Initially, he had seemed to be absolutely right about the fact that she would not feel the same way forever. He had just left out the part where she would feel infinitely worse. She guessed neither of them had counted on the fact that time and space to think about the tragedy would be time and space to think about every horrible aspect of it. Imagine it in vivid color and live with it playing in your head every single day. The least rational and most intractable thing to get lodged in her head was her guilt for leaving her family behind in space. For a while, she got obsessed with reading everything she could find on the accident, every report, every account. Some things were censored and redacted for the public at large. Some things were censored for her and the other children that had lost loved ones. This created the paradoxical situation where more information just created less clarity because it wasn't all of the information. One of the more obscure reports had to do with the adjustments they had needed to make to the Contiki's course heading in response to the force of the impact. There was a small aside tucked away in there about how the impact and resulting decompression had been violent enough to throw the debris far enough from the ship that it had not established a, quote, gravitational relationship with the mass of the vessel, end quote. And the person authoring the report felt that the, quote, collateral materials would establish independent trajectories behind and away from the Contiki, end quote. She had been 11 
when she found this gem. She rarely understood half of what she saw in these reports, and no one had ever intended her to read them. Chances are that if anyone had known she was trying to read them, they would have been horrified. But mostly, she'd just stare at the words and hope for meaning to appear. But there was something about this passage that had caught her attention. It took her three tries before she finally got to the bottom line. They had left her parents and grandparents behind in space. She didn't know why this had not occurred to her before. They were out there, dead, tumbling through empty space, while she and the Contiki got further and further away, leaving them behind broken and lifeless. In her, in her mind, their eyes were always open. They were cold and inert but clear, staring mindlessly into the never-ending blackness. This haunted her and she could not let it go. When she closed her eyes at night, that image was there. If she didn't have something actively distracting her, in any given moment, the corpses of her parents drifting through space, abandoned like garbage, would fill that gap. And they would always be there. They wouldn't decompose in the vacuum. Long after she was dead and had been burned up or buried or whatever, they would still be there, getting ever further away, disappearing into darkness, thrown away and betrayed by the whole town and their own daughter. They would always be there, and she would always be thinking about them at every idle moment in ever more vivid detail for the rest of her life. That was when she started to think seriously about suicide. She was 13. She went through a bunch of scenarios. The obvious thing was that she was one of the only people on the ship that lived with a firearm in her residence. But that felt like a betrayal of Sumner, and he had been kind enough to take her in. It occurred to her that there are probably a lot of ways to end your life on a spaceship, but she didn't really know enough about how the whole thing worked to know what might result in something catastrophic happening, like the ship imploding or something. Finally, she had settled on the catwalks. Officially, the only catwalks that were available to the ship residents were the lower tiers, but teenagers have been handing down ways to get around the gates and up to the upper maintenance staff catwalks since the ship's first year out of dock. Since then, pretty much everyone made use of them at some point, and no one ever said anything, though the gates remained in place, as did the restricted signs, and it was expected that you wouldn't flaunt your transgression. She'd have to get to the highest level catwalk to be sure it would work. She didn't think anyone would be surprised. She had withdrawn enough in the previous three years that she doubted that she was much on anyone's mind these days. She'd pick somewhere discreet, not the town center, not over the promenade. She'd hit the pavement, and people would be shocked then they would realize who it was that was splattered all over the place, 
that kid who'd killed her entire family a few years ago, and they would think, oh, well, that makes sense. And then they would move on from her just the way that they and she had moved on from her parents. And that would be what she deserved. She made her way up to the second catwalk, and she was heading toward the gate to the metal stairs that led up to the off-limits levels. There were kind of a lot of people on the catwalks that day, jogging or strolling or just watching the activity below. She thought she might have to put off her plan until she could get a little more privacy, maybe come back in the middle of the night. But she decided she would just station herself against the rail and near the gate and give it a little bit. Maybe a gap would open up. She leaned against the railing and waited. Who could say if Maxine would have gone through with it? Did she want to die? Or did she just want to close her eyes without seeing the corpses of her loved ones floating in space? She felt worn out, well beyond her 13 years, and she just didn't know how this would ever change. And that is the essence of hopelessness, to feel like neither you nor your life can ever change. She felt there was a universe of cold black death inside her, and if she opened her mouth, opened herself to any other living person, it would flood out and swallow them just as it had swallowed her parents who were now getting further and further away every single day. Then she saw him. It was Sumner. He was standing on a corner where the promenade met the cross street that dead-ended right below her. Someone had stopped him. She didn't recognize the guy who had waved Sumner down. Was it someone who was the victim of a crime? Had it been a robbery or a stick-up? Was his wife a secret serial killer and he had discovered that she had filled their closet with the skulls of her victims? The guy talked at Sumner and Sumner nodded, taking in whatever the guy had to say. Sumner didn't seem to say much himself, nor did he write anything down. He let the guy talk, and then, at the end, he said something short that was accompanied by a more definitive nod. When the guy walked away, he seemed completely satisfied, though from what Maxine could tell, Sumner hadn't actually done anything. No crimes were solved. Sumner started to move on, and on a whim, Maxine trailed him from the catwalk, following him as he appeared in crossway after crossway. More people stopped him. More people did pretty much the same thing the first guy had. Jim of Jim's Bakery testily monologued at Sumner for a solid five minutes, and Sumner had just said a single sentence when Jim was done, and Jim smiled and waved as Sumner moved on. Cherie's mom, Anita, stopped Sumner, leaned close, put her hand on his arm even. Sumner left it there until she was done, then he said a couple of short things and removed her hand so gently that she didn't even seem to notice. Maxine came to a junction where the catwalk along the wall T-boned the catwalk that went across the ship. She went out to the section that hung over the promenade so she could watch Sumner's progress across the blocks. From there, she saw a woman with a very concerned look on her face approach Sumner. Sumner followed her to another woman, an older woman who Maxine recognized as a teacher who had retired the year before Maxine might have had her in a class. That had stuck with Maxine because it had meant that Maxine had the same teacher for third grade that she'd had for second grade. 
Sumner nodded to the first woman and sat down next to the retired teacher. She talked, and then she stopped. Sumner didn't say anything, just sat with her and watched people pass. Then she talked some more, and Sumner listened. Seemed to ask a question, maybe? The woman chuckled and continued. Sumner listened. Finally, she patted Sumner's leg. He said something short, and she nodded this time. Then he stood up, waved to her, and moved on. That was when Maxine truly saw Sumner Gray for the first time, saw who and what he was. He was the listener. He was the receptacle. He walked around town day in and day out, and people came up to him with whatever they needed to get off their chest. He took it in, and from what it seemed, that was all they needed most of the time. There was something about this that that felt like, well, it was interesting. Interesting enough that she didn't kill herself that day. She did return to the catwalk the very next day, though, but this time it was to follow Sumner again. The same thing happened that day, and the following day, and all the next week. What came then was not a sudden revelation that she wanted to live after all. It was more subtle than that. Watching Sumner go out into the world and take in people's problems or concerns while never giving back any of his own, she started to see a way to be in the world. Part of what made her feel trapped was that she thought the only thing she had to offer was darkness and grief. And because of that, she would only ever be the tragedy girl, the orphan, the worst-case scenario, the girl who had killed her own family. But what if she took herself out of the equation, not in the literal way that her first plan had offered, but Sumner's way? Just go out every day, and if someone started talking to you, let them. She decided that if she had nothing to give people, then nothing was what she would give them. She'd just give them a space to fill with whatever was on their mind. So, that was what she did. Every day, she went out into the ship, and if someone talked to her, which at first no one really had, she'd just let them. And slowly, it had started to work. The first person to really respond to this had been Jeannie, the proprietor of the Game Center. Mostly, she liked to talk about new games and VR she was hoping to get and plans she had for features. Jeannie was not particularly deep, but she had a lot to say, and Maxine let her say it. Others had followed. There was a young mom named Sarah that Maxine had met while sitting on a bench in the promenade. Her main preoccupation was the mental development of her daughter, who was still very small. Sarah spent all of her time reading every developmental landmark like they were tea leaves that would tell her 100% that everything with little Olivia was going to be just fine. Maxine nodded when Sarah needed her to nod, and it seemed like that made Sarah feel better. There was a guy on the maintenance crew named Terry. Terry's main responsibility was the main square, and he felt people's neglect of the main square was an early indication of what surely would be their neglect of their new home and a willingness to take it for granted. 
He fretted over the impending civic dissolution of the planet-side colony even more than he did over the state of the square that had inspired his prediction of imminent societal collapse. The square looked fine to Maxine, but she didn't say anything. She just let Terry spill his concerns. At some point, she found herself sitting next to the old woman that Sumner had spoken to that day. Her name was Mo. She found out that teaching had been Mo's second career. Before that, she'd been one of the botanists that worked in the hydroponic cells. Her lab had been in cell six. She'd loved being a botanist. She loved science. She had loved gathering data and figuring out mysteries, and she loved getting to do all of that while surrounded with living things. She had hit retirement age, and that had been distressing. But in a place with a limited population, people had to make room for others. Still, the retirement age for education staff was later than for science staff, so she had segued into another career and taught for, ten, for another 10 years. Now she was trying to hold on for the landing on the planet. She just wanted one year, she said. One year with all of those glorious new plants. At some point, Mo worked her way around the loss of hydroponic cell 3, and Maxine realized the old botanist had no idea that she was the tragic orphan of that incident. Mo had lost an old colleague who had been in the cell that day, collecting some samples. He had intended to work with these samples the next day. His name had been Jason, and he was a so-so scientist, but a very kind man, to hear Mo tell it. Maxine did not tell the woman who she was or how she was connected to the incident. She stuck to her plan and let Mo fill the space with whatever she wanted to talk about. Maxine also never found out what Mo had talked to Sumner about. It had been work not telling Mo who she was. This was not natural to Maxine, not in the way it was to Sumner. She had to focus on not saying anything, not giving advice or an opinion. But she stuck to it because she knew that every road in her head led to the accident and to death, and she was determined to fill the world around her with anything but the accident, anything but death. It was an imperfect solution to a perfect disaster. It also worked. Slowly but surely, when she went to bed at night and closed her eyes, she saw her parents drifting and dead less and less. More and more, when she closed her eyes, she saw Jeannie's plan to have something called Ski-Ball installed in the game center. She saw Terry examining a soiled napkin from someone's lunch that was only three paces from a trash can and heard him tell her it was this kind of thing that turned Earth into such a trash heap. She saw Mo telling her that she hoped to quarantine a little patch of ground on Oxalis when they got there, just to see if she could grow honeysuckle. She loved honeysuckle. The accident still loomed large over Maxine. She still had trouble during the school season, when dealing with all the kids her own age, especially those that had been present that day. But she did find herself with something else in her head these days, all of these other lives. 
She could feel the urge to give the people she talked to the little bits of story and wisdom she'd picked up from all the other people she talked to. Things that were useful, not just gossip. She found herself wanting to compare notes with Sumner about their respective rounds. But she wasn't sure if he even knew that she had rounds. They'd been out together a few times, and people had nodded to her and smiled and said, Hi, Maxine! And these encounters had elicited a curious glance from Sumner, but he, true to his way, didn't say anything. He just gave her the room to say whatever she needed to, without pushing her, just like she'd been doing. But unlike Sumner, Maxine was starting to get the notion that someday she would be ready to speak again. More than just nods and sure and really. This was never going to be a miracle cure for grief, but just a way to put one foot in front of the other until she ended up somewhere. It was a way to make room for the possibility, no matter how slight, of change. By the day that the Contiki had made Planetfall, Maxine still treasured her isolation, but the planet would be a new beginning for the town and she thought that it might be that for her as well. She thought that all change is bittersweet. She thought that she would never be who she had been before the accident. She thought that she would always be haunted by her family's deaths. But she also thought she could be something new, something more than the tragedy's orphan. She could be a new Maxine, and she would be. Chapter 56 Everyone opened their eyes slowly. Mr. Humphreys or Oxalus was conspicuously absent. Laurent couldn't meet anyone's eyes right away, and she stood up and walked off toward one of the dark corners of the cave. Sumner had come around with his back up against one of the large mushroom bulbs. Maxine was a few feet away from him, lying flat on her back. She sat up slowly on one elbow and looked at him. Sumner looked back and was suddenly aware that there were tears streaming down his face. He'd have been embarrassed. He might have looked away or tried to hide his face, but that didn't seem to be an option. So instead, he just stared her right in the eye and let the waterworks flow. Maxine got wobbly to her knees and kind of shuffled over to Sumner. She sat down facing him next to his left thigh and took his hands into hers. She let him go on for a bit. Finally, he took a deep breath, sighed it out, and said, Jesus, there had to be a better example than me. Maxine smiled sadly. There was no one better. You gave me the room I needed to heal and a, and a way to let the world in on my own terms. And you showed me a way to be, I don't know, useful all at the same time? He looked down at their intertwined hands, then a small storm came over his face. I can't believe I didn't realize you were getting into the accident reports. That was some father of the year nonsense right there. You couldn't have kept me out of them if you'd wanted to. He raised an eyebrow. I was a really smart kid. 
You are a really smart kid. She stared into the darkness and a strange alien expression passed over her face. I don't think I am really a kid anymore. But I guess we'll never find out what I actually am now. Sumner didn't know what to say to that. Maxine stared off after Laurent. She could see her silhouette in the half-light standing about four feet from a cave wall. She had her back to them and her arms crossed, head bent forward. I feel bad that I dragged her into that. Who is she? Military. She lost everyone, too. But it happened just this afternoon. The command part of the ship tried a premature launch and it went very bad. Everyone up top is gone, which means that everyone she knew is, too. She's the only one left. Maxine looked horrified. Sumner continued. I doubt that has even sunk in yet, for her, I mean. If what you say is right, I guess it won't have time to. Maxine's reaction to this was irrational. They were going to die. The planet was going to kill them. The fact that some had gone first, and that one more orphan, as it were, had been left behind to die with the people on the ship, could not possibly be of any consequence. But it was just the cruelty of it, the cruelty of one more person feeling anything like what she had felt. The brutal blankness of having all the love you have ever known ripped away from you at once, it overwhelmed her. Her vision flooded and her mind roared and she was pure anger as she wheeled around, got to her feet, and screamed at the roof of the cave, Humphreys! Nothing. Oxalus! Nothing. Show yourself! Show yourself, you murderer! Nothing. For a long, silent moment, nothing. Then, off in the darkness, Laurent said, I should have killed you when I had the chance. Chapter 57 Maxine and Sumner turned their eyes towards Laurent. She was not looking at them, but at something in the darkness, though neither of them could see it, or anything at all. But whatever it was, it had Laurent's full attention. The last thing I should have done before I left was beat your rotten brain into jelly. If I had thought for a minute they deserved to be free of you, I would have done it. Maxine looked at Sumner to see if he knew what all this was about. But Sumner was no longer looking at Laurent. Now, he seemed to be staring about three yards in front of him at a little rigid depression in the cave floor. But his face did not say he was keenly interested in the geological forces behind the cavern's formation. His eyes were wide with a terror that Maxine had never seen and could never have imagined seeing on the face of Sumner Gray. Then... A roaring hit her ears that almost brought her to her knees. Chapter 58 Laurent was staring into the darkest corner of the chamber, trying to figure out what she had just been through. 
There had always been a piece of Laurent that found other people's lives so mystifying. She'd been raised in the battle that was her family, and she had a warrior's edge, the alert wariness that never accepted any circumstance secure until you'd made it so. And even then, you didn't let your guard down. This had been with her since long before she'd joined up. This had been her since her earliest memory. Whenever she had been around people, civilians usually, who had a more relaxed mindset, whose attentions were easily distracted by ephemera or fantasies, she envied them and she pitied them. They were soft because they had soft lives. Who wouldn't want to live in a world where you were coddled and cared for and just expected that to continue to be the case? But at the same time, who would want to be a spoiled dilettante who was forever reliant on the goodwill of others, especially in a universe that was demonstrably short on goodwill? And when she was a child, she had expected that the happy kids, who always had a new game to play and seemed to just expect the world to be fun and non-hostile, were that way because someone had been spoon-feeding them sugar and cake like the spoiled little pigs they were. She had not been particularly popular in grade school. But then, today, she had been inside Maxine's nine-year-old mind. It wasn't what Maxine got that had defined her. It was what she gave. Certainly, she was safe and secure with her loving and earnest parents. Certainly, she had toys and stuff and friends but she was always thinking beyond what she had to what she could make, games and plays and stories, and then how she could involve others in what she had made. She seemed to always be trying to include those around her to figure out what would inspire them so she could give them a share of her own inspiration. And she was a ball of inspiration. She had so much energy, and she just gave it away freely to every other kid and adult she met, and somehow, that meant she only got more in return. She seemed determined, without thinking about it, just on instinct and because of who she was, she seemed determined to make the world good. And then, when everything was snatched away from her when undeniable proof that the universe was arbitrarily cruel, when she had been driven to the very edge of hopelessness, what saved her was not the will to fight back, that determination to not be defeated that had driven the lieutenant's journey, but just the barest glimpse at a way to be of use to others again. Even though she had nothing to give, and was too destroyed inside to let anyone in, what had brought her just enough hope to keep going was the idea that she could do something for the people around her. Even if that something was literally nothing. Nothing more than just being there every day. And it hurt her. This part made Laurent's breath catch. It was painful to Maxine to try. What had driven her off the ship and out onto the planet was that she still 
had so far to go before she felt like she could be one of them again, and that hurt her every day. But Laurent knew for a fact that if this had all turned out differently, Maxine would have come right back and tried again and kept trying to be something good for this world, for her world. She was looking for a path away from the bitterness that Laurent had worn as a shield every day of her life, and she was 15 years old. Laurent thought of herself as a leader. She realized now that she was a commander. She could be there for her people, and she would keep them on task, but she would never inspire them. She saw what a leader was now, and it was that 15-year-old girl. I guess I will always be to blame for all the ways you came up short. Is that it? The voice sent a chill right through her. She looked up, and as she came to his face, smirking at her with his bully's disdain, she felt too many emotions to process at once, not least of which was disbelief. Her father had to be dead. He was drinking himself to death when she left home a century ago. And he was, the, he was the same age as the last time she had seen him. No, he was younger. He was the age he had been when she was a kid, when she was still afraid of him. He grinned and said, I'm not dead, I never die. I'm always right here to remind you that you are a useless piece of trash. And with that, the whites of his eyes filled with blood. Then the disbelief slipped away. It was like tearing through a paper curtain, and on the other side, she was in a world where her father was alive and just as cruel and hateful as he'd ever been. Her heart raced, and her mind ping-ponged between fear and hate, and she said, I should have killed you when I had the chance. Chapter 59. Sumner was worried about Laurent. Her talking to nothing about killing things couldn't be a good sign. Of course, good sign or not, there wasn't much he was going to be able to do about it. As he took stock of what was available to him, he realized that it wasn't much. He was in worse shape than he'd realized, and he had already suspected the worst. Still, before the little trip through Maxine's memories, he thought he might be able to make it back to the ship. Now, he knew that was not on the menu, especially given the fact that he could no longer feel his legs. He thought that he needed to apprise Maxine of the situation and was about to tell her when he caught movement just a little ways ahead. There was something just over there where the floor dipped, something moving in the dark. There was just a half-second of doubt, barely an instant when he wasn't sure. Then the oldest fear he'd known welled up in the darkened nights of his childhood bedroom. He watched the greasy, black, twisting flesh of the burrower crawl into view. It moved like it had bones sharp as knives under the tarry surface, but he knew better. 
He knew that when it reached him, it would open the dozens of needle-sharp mouths, and when one of them had opened him up for the creature to crawl its way under his skin, it would then use all those needles to chew its way through him. He was going to be devoured from the inside out. It would rip its way through his muscles and organs and skin until there was nothing left but shredded ribbons. His heart began to hammer rushing blood through all of the open wounds inside him. His adrenaline spiked at the same moment that his body grew weaker. He was a loose marionette who could do nothing but watch the stalking, oozing monster that had come to feed on him. Through gritted teeth, with not nearly enough air, he said, Maxine, you have to run! She had stood up, and for a brief second he thought she was actually going to do what she was told for once. But then she stopped and stared around the room. Maxine! Maxine, run! Chapter 60 If... She'd had access to all of her faculties, Maxine might have realized that she had heard this sound before. It was in the VR edition of Selena Simon and the Planet of the Unforgotten. As it was, that dim and distant familiarity only served to underscore the screaming alarm klaxon in her head that said, Something evil is coming. And then, evil was there. The floor of the cave buckled and heaved and ruptured. Rock and soil pushed aside as a mechanical claw the size of one of Finley's maintenance carts came rising out of the planet, followed by a long length of thick steel tentacle. The claw slammed down into the ground. As it cemented its grip, there was the sound of steam gasping and releasing, and the clicking of reticulated gears rotating and locking. Then five more tentacles emerged, and when they had found their purchase, there was a sound of heaving and grinding, and then he was there. The great bald weasel head of Commissioner Zednot rose from the hole in the ground. It was huge and out of proportion, no longer the skull and face of a simple woodland creature, but a hairless, monstrous parody of the raw materials the rotten consciousness inside had used to create the thing it now was. It fixed its gaze on Maxine and grinned a mouthful of yellow fangs. It was savoring the look on her face as it showed the rest of itself. The tank body with its steel plates and its array of weapons and sensors and blades that were still bloody. Then came the legs, the mechanical robot legs that swayed and wobbled like a sick joke on the gambling of fawns before jabbing down into the ground with force and locking into a rigid stance with a whine and moan of metal making itself immovable. Fully in view, Zednot rose up and spread itself out, as if to let Maxine take in its full glory. 
Then he smirked, and the writhing tentacles all suddenly slithered back together as if to form one cable the thickness of an apartment block as they reached down into the hole from whence the monster had emerged. When they came back up, it was clutching something in each of its six claws. At first, it was way too dark for Maxine to see what it was. She was having a hard time focusing on all this anyway. Things in her vision seemed to swim and swell and retract. Her horror and fear was being thrown into wild, mindless directions by her visual disorientation. Then the thing extended its tentacles and opened its claws like a magician's flourish, and Maxine's vision snapped into raw clarity. There, hovering freely over each extended claw, was the lolling corpse of a member of Maxine's family. Her four grandparents and her mother and father, all of them suspended in air, tumbling over the open, razor-sharp talons with the lazy stiffness that Maxine had always imagined every time she closed her eyes to see them receding into the blackness, away from her and away from the ship. Zednot hissed at her, Maxine! I brought them back to you, Maxine. Aren't you grateful? Her mind felt like it was going to break right in half, and then she'd be gone. The world around her and everything in her brain was a teeming landscape of the worst horrors she could imagine. Blood and destruction and death swirled in her peripheral vision. Drowned corpses in the Spanish cities, desiccated deer and crushed hive builders and ragged sails that flaked and shredded like rotten skin. It all pulsed and surged and undulated at the edges of her vision while Zednot loomed in front of her, twirling the corpses of her family like an evil wizard from a fairy tale. She was just about to drown in the rising tide of terror when something, an off note, tugged at her. She might have missed it, but her brain was looking for a refuge, anything that was not this, and it caught on this different emotion. It was like finding a secret room in a house that you thought you knew. She closed her eyes and focused on this small, hidden room of sadness. Zednot began to laugh and howl. His gears began to whine and whir and whistle and scream. The cries from Spain and from the high builders, the neighing of the dying animals, all of it began to climb in volume. Maxine kept shutting it out. She squeezed her eyes shut and focused. This calm little moat of sadness where did it lead? She forced her brain down into that emotion, and when she did, when she saw what was on the other side, she realized that was not a hidden room, that sadness. That grief was the mansion, and all of this was just the facade. Maxine opened her eyes, looked up and beyond Zednot. Through the cacophony of horrors, 
into the darkness of the real cave, which was still there beyond the illusion, and said simply, Stop it. Zednot looked confused, but she no longer noticed Zednot. She repeated herself. Stop it. And, with only a moment's hesitation, all of it disappeared. This has been Maxine and the Planets Unknown by Brad Lawrence. Intro music, Bumbling by Pictures of the Floating World. Outro music, Children by the Creek by Chad Crouch. Thank you for listening.